Thank you. And just a reminder that our practitioners are in service each and every week. Uh, they provide us with a meditation service in the solarium out the door to your right. And after each service, they are in the practitioner room out the door to your right. And um, they will... Uh, that's two rights, isn't it? <laughs> two rights make a wrong. So I was wrong. Go that way to meditation and that way... <laughs> For ministry, I, I told you, Saudi. Three brain. rights make a left. <laughs> Three rights make a left. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, the man with all the answers is here, apparently. <laughs> Reverend Patrick. It reminds me. I told a story a, a number of months ago about the the, the couple that they uh, they decided that in order to travel safely, they would never make a left turn. So they would make three rights every time they wanted to go left. What a great idea. So, anyway, well, welcome. Good morning. I wanted to. Um, good morning. I wanted to um, share something with you before we went into prayer because um, I think it's just important to, to uh, use our words to help us, guide us into that space. And this comes from a book called Living the Question. And it's called The Nature of the Dance. And it says, It seems that each person is born with an unencumbered spot, free of expectation and regret. Free of ambition and embarrassment. Free of fear and worry. An umbilical spot of grace where we were first touched by God. And it is this spot of grace that issues peace. Psychologists call this spot the psyche. Theologians call it the soul. Carl Jung called it the seat of the unconscious. Hindu masters call it Atman. Buddhists call it Dharma. Rilke called it the inwardness. Sufis call it Kalb. And Jesus calls it the center of our love. And when I read that this morning when I got up uh, and found that book, and uh, I just thought this is truly a, a wonderful uh, narrative of what I think our prayer work and our prayer practice represents and it is to identify with that unencumbered spot and to to touch that and so I invite you as we go into this <clears throat> this prayer to open to that spot to that awareness if it if it fits for you and if not it's fine but it is our opportunity to touch that unencumbered spot that is always there. In this very room there's quite enough love for all the world and in this very room there's quite enough joy for all the world and there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit one spirit is 
is in this very room in this very room in this very room and so I invite you to know with me in this moment in the beauty and the grace of the remembrance of who we are and whose we are this unbroken connection this doorway, this threshold of spirit. And as I see in my mind's eye myself crossing that threshold once again and stepping into the light and stepping into the grace and stepping into the beauty and the joy and the celebration, I celebrate this day the the music, the dance, and the stories that enliven and inform my lives, all of our lives, all of our stories, precious. It is the hero's journey. And so I give thanks this day for this perennial truth, this wisdom that we share and celebrate, this depth of consciousness that at the subtlest of levels continues to evolve and change and shift. And I, this is my knowing and this is my opening to this for myself. And I, I, I honor your sharing with me in this journey of love, of freedom, of joy and celebration. Despite whatever the world conditions look like, I give thanks for this beautiful, beautiful community, this beautiful teaching, and this beautiful way of life that continues to transform my vision of the world and your vision of the world and the perceptions that we carry. I give thanks for this beautiful sharing this day, this beautiful gathering this day, for life, for love, for joy. And I invite you to say with me, knowing we have impressed upon this infinite law, these ideas to live from and dwell upon, and nurture and together we say and so it is thank you thanks for standing up with me <clears throat> thank you brown bless you so today i picked a, um, selected to begin the discussion um, the, the uh, title of the sharing is socrates why and I like Socrates because he was the, he really was, the great thing, well, a number of great things about Socrates, and there's all kinds of myths about him, and I've been telling stories, as I did more research this week, I realized that a lot of the stuff that's been written about Socrates may or may not be true, because there's a mythology, he never wrote anything down. Plato came along and wrote down what, what Socrates uh, had to say, because Plato was one of his students, or he sat with Socrates. But interesting, interesting man. One of the things we do know about Socrates was his death, and I'll, I'll, I'll share that with you later. But as an interesting man, he, just, he, he, just, he helped evolve uh, the Socratic method, of course. Now, there's a restaurant in uh, St. Albert that I drove by. I think Gary uh, Buckingham actually owns that restaurant. Gary, do you own that restaurant? Anyway, uh, but it's called Socrates, and I was going to run over there this week to check it out to see what the menu had to say. So uh, I'll just go in and ask a bunch of questions about the food and drive them crazy, maybe. But Socrates really was about the question. He really wanted people to think. He really encouraged, and and we are a a tradition that is all based on quality of thinking and perception. And so it's a beautiful jumping-off point for what we stand for. And, and a lot of his, what he left is, is, is uh, behind was this method of inquiry. And it said that Socrates would always be asking the questions. But, he, but the interesting thing about him, and one of the historians that actually worked with him and had been around him said that he was always on top of the conversation. He'd always encourage people's 
uh, he'd always ask the questions, but he'd always kind of spin it around with his own, with his own biases on things. So it's interesting how he would um, encourage the inquiry. But he really went, his whole thing was to think. Why do we make the decisions we make? Why do we come to the conclusions? Why do we respond to things the way we respond to things? And I think it's just so uh, indicative of our, our tradition. He said, Socrates said, an unexamined life is not worth living for a human being. And so I know you've probably heard that quote many times and where did it come from, but this is, this is our opportunity and our challenge many times is to live the examined life. He had six types or six types of Socratic questions, questions for clarification, questions for probes and assumptions, questions that probe reason and evidence, questions about viewpoints and, and perspectives, questions that probe implications and consequences, and questions about questions. So today's a question. One of the first questions I have is why is it impossible for women to put mascara on without with not having their mouths open. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? I just think, you know, there's, these are some of the important questions we need to ask as well. Or how does, how does James Bond know if his martini is shaken or stirred? I've never been able to figure that one out. Those are, and those are some interesting questions as well. David White is one of my favorite guys, and... Uh, before I get to David, I want to share. There's a book that's jumped off uh, as I was, Laura and I were talking this morning off the, the bookcase this morning, and it's called Living the Question. I was looking for another book, and I looked over and I saw Living the Question. And in it, it's a book that has been inspired by Parker Palmer, and Parker Palmer's an amazing man, and he's influenced a lot of thinkers. And so a chapter in the, each chapter in the book is, is, is someone else that he asked to share. But they were all in, they've all been influenced by Parker Palmer. But he, he was doing a commencement speech. And uh, at the commencement speech, he told the students, he said, 10 or 20 years from now, the questions you choose to live will have become the shape of your life. 10 or 20 years from now, the questions that you choose to live will become the shape of your life. And the, the, the beautiful thing about what I think, at, the, at the, the, the healthiest perspective I think we can have about questions is, it's not finding the answer, but it's the questions that, that bring us to life. It's the questions that we ask ourselves the, the Catholic mystic Thomas Merton said, if you want to identify me, ask me not where I live or what I like to eat or how I comb my hair, but ask me what I'm living for in detail. Ask me what I'm living for in detail and ask me what I, I think is keeping me from living fully for the thing I want to live for. And that's a beautiful question. Ask me what I'm living for in detail and ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully for the thing I want to live for. So then the quality of our questions help guide us throughout life. You know, we're, we're, and, and I look at the, the, uh, what's happening on the planet right now, we're in such a, a time of change. There's always changes, always a constant, but politically, economically, and in so many ways, there's so much change happening. And we see it in the Mideast with the, the countries that are you know, exploding and, and seeking a different way of life and a different freedom. And it's our divine nature. Dr. Holmes talked about that. Our, our, our divine, we are, we are wired for freedom. And so our teaching, it really helps support the individual in thinking and identifying what is it that I want to live for? What am I living for in detail? And, and each one of us finds that, <clears throat> each one of us finds that in, in, in their own way, in their own time. David White is one of my favorite uh, authors, and David wrote a poem 
called Sometimes. And I used this poem, uh, was a, I was the guest speaker with the United uh, Asilomar last year, and it was a wonderful experience. And I, I wrapped my, my talk that day around this poem. It's called Sometimes. And then David, over the last couple of weeks, uh, put out a, a newsletter with 10 questions. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to share some of those questions with you. But sometimes, and so what David had to say, I'll, I'll, uh, I, w- I am going to share the poem with you, but I want to set this up. David said, the marvelous thing about a good question is that it shapes our identity as much as the asking as it does by the answering. And this is so true. So it's, it's to live in the question. When Laura and I were, spent some time, uh, I think it was a year ago, with uh, uh, Elizabeth Lesser at the Omega Institute. And, and on a Saturday evening, um, Thomas Moore spoke. And he is a Jungian psychologist. He had been a, 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 a seminarian in the Catholic Church for a number of years and went into private practice. And he's, he's written several wonderful books. And he wrote a book called Care of the Soul. And he lectured one evening, and we went to the lecture. And so a guy got up. He was taking questions at the end of the lecture. And a guy got up, and he said, you know, uh, um, when I have a dream, and he was from New England, so I fell into the, I don't mean to pick on anybody from New England, but he had a very heavy kind of Boston accent. And he said, you know, when I have a dream, I like to figure the dream out. And then, you know, and then I can, you know, I can make the next decision. And Thomas Moore said, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't try and figure it out because then it becomes part of your agenda. Just work with it. Work with the dream. Work with the art. Work with the thing. And I think it's important because there's a subtlety to it. As soon as we reach a conclusion that the dream becomes another part of our arsenal of this is what it means for me. And so I thought that was a beautiful sharing and, and so courageous because it's so, you know, we like the answer. We like to know how the story's going to end. We like to know what's going to happen. So David, but, but David talks about this. The marvelous thing about a good question is that it shapes our identity as much as by asking as it does by sometimes answering. Nine years ago, I wrote a poem called Sometimes in which I talked about the questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have no right to go away. He said, I still work with this idea. Questions that have no right to go away are those that have to do with the person we are about to become. And they are con- conversations that will happen with or without a conscious participation. So our opportunity is to understand this with greater clarity and then we can work with it because it's going to happen. We are constantly being transformed. Our work and, and one of the challenges with it and why it's, so, it's such a challenge for us is it requires the devotion and the obedience to our own practices because what we, what we work with is very subtle. There's a subtlety to what we do. The prayer work is very subtle. And, 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 to, and that's what requires that devotional peace because many times it doesn't look like anything's happening and yet everything's happening as we do the prayer work. Every time we do a prayer, that prayer is still alive. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish, it doesn't lose impact. And so there's three questions that I want to share with you that David White, uh, because there's ten, but there's, that's, you know, we don't have time for ten. But sometimes, I'm going to use the poem sometimes right now. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, moving like the ones in the old stories, who could cross a bed of shimmering leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny, frightening requests. Conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. Request to stop what you're doing right now and to stop what you're becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. And questions that have no right to go away. And so David then shares ten questions. 
And I think that for all of us, for myself, what are the questions that have been waiting patiently for me? A real conversation. Do I know the first question David asked? Well, let me back up a little bit. He said, if we are sincere in asking, the eventual answer will give us both a sense of coming home to something we already know as well as a sense of surprise. Not unlike returning from a long journey to find an old friend sitting unexpectedly on the front step, as if she'd known without ever being told not only the exact time and date of your arrival, but also your need to be welcomed back. I like that imagery. You know, that it's, it's waiting there for us. But when we ask the questions, and what are the questions? And see, it's, there's not one question, it's fluid, because everybody's questions are different. First question, do I know how to have a real conversation? And he talks about, in this, he uses the example of having a conversation with his, his 10-year-old daughter. He said, there are many tough conversations, but one of the most difficult is between a parent and an adolescent daughter. Anybody ever had that conversation? I've had that conversation a number of times. And partly because as a parent, we're almost always attempting to relate to someone who is no longer there. So our children are constantly changing. This is the challenge if you have children. You were relating to children, that, you know, and the, the children are evolving and changing. And so we're relating to the child two years ago, and they're not there anymore. That, they've moved on. I've noticed this. I know the ones that are chuckling have had children. <laughs> Another important question I think we need to ask is, why don't they have a root beer flavored ice cream? Isn't that a, I mean, then you, with a root beer float, you just, what would you put in it, I guess? I don't know. I just think that would be... Or feed the mayonnaise to the tuna before they, before they uh, can them. <laughs> the parent, therefore, getting back to the child relationship, the parent, therefore, usually tries to start the conversation by offering a perspective that the daughter finds not only out of date but also unhelpful. The daughter then replies by way of defense with something just a shade more unhelpful. And so the process continues. A year or so ago, I found myself in exactly this dynamic. My daughter's bedroom door slammed shut as I was just about to say the last deeply satisfying, unhelpful thing. (laughs) And he said to himself, David, this isn't a real conversation. How do you make this a real conversation? I gave it the old 10-minute cool-down time. I walked to the kitchen, made a tea and put out a tray, and on the tray a plate of cookies, a, pit, a milk pitcher, a cup, and a saucer. And then I knocked on her door, and I said in a very different, more invitational voice, Come on, Charlotte, I've made tea. Let's go have a talk. And as soon as I put the tray down and we had sat next to each other, almost by accident, I happened to say exactly the right thing. I said, Charlotte, tell me one thing you'd like me to stop doing as a father, and then tell me one thing you'd like me to do more of. She suddenly gazed up at me with a lovely look in her eyes the one I knew from her very early infancy. She was engaged again because at last I was really inviting her to tell me who she was and who she had become. Not who she had been or who I wanted her to to be, but who she was now. So simple, so subtle, but but to ask the, the questions. You know, to be in that real conversation. David talks about, in the second question, he says, what can I be wholehearted about? And I love his theme of wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness, I think, is at the, the cornerstone of what I, I think the world needs, is wholeheartedness. And um, from my observation and what's happening on the planet, I think that, you see, when I first came to this teaching, a lot of times we'd go into class and people would say, you know, every time I go to, to, to the store, I, my, my affirmation is, I find a parking spot right in front of the building. Right next to the door. I always find a parking spot right next to the building. 
And I think that is swell. But I think there's something more interesting we can do with, with our, our spiritual practice than demonstrate parking spots. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. You know what I do? I always affirm that the furthest spot away from the front door is going to be available to me so I can get out and get some exercise. Because I was turning into a cupcake for a while. I need to walk and move. And every time I go, the furthest spot from the door is always available. So I've got it knocked. There's a knowing I have when I go to the store now. I park the farthest away, and it's there. So I want to thank you. But, but I'm telling you, I go to, you know, every time I go shop, well, you know, and the other part of this, because all of a sudden it's affirmative prayer that's creating the parking spots. And I think that's a misrepresentation of what we teach because there's other things involved with it. People actually finish shopping and they actually leave. There's other, you know, we're in this whole relationship called life and humanity. I mean, there's a law of percentages. A mathematician could explain it mathematically, the percentages of people that come and go. But I'm just saying there's many levels to this. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that whatever we decide to use this infinite and unbounded potential for in our lives, it responds to us. And if it is to demonstrate parking spots, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But there, there's, there's something we're called to do. You know the uh, young man that, uh, there was a police officer that was killed uh, a couple weeks ago. And I don't know all the details, I don't know the names, but I know there was a young man that took off and, and, the, and the officer was killed. And the, the car flipped and the, young, and, uh, the boy is... Uh, also impaired. He's alive, but he's, I believe he's paralyzed. And, I, and, and the question I have for myself as just a human being and being a parent and being in this community uh, is that what happened? What were the conversations? What, what conversations went on with the, the young man uh, in his family and his friends and his influence that made it such a scary thing to be pulled over? be stopped by the police. And I don't know, and I'm sure you have a lot more details than I do, but I'm just, I ponder those things, and it saddens me that, there's, there, that that level of fear can drive decisions. And fear is a, Parker Palmer talks about fear. In his chapter two in this book, Living the Question, he said, be not afraid. Fear is fundamental to the human condition and to academic culture. And he's been a teacher his whole life. He said, we will always have our fears, but we need not be our fears. And when I see that, I know that that's, that's fear running rampant. And, and the conversations and whatever led to that culturally, because if we're all one, then that's part of that, that, that is part of my family as well, what happened there. And, it just, and, and now lives have been diminished in ways that they will never, never have the wholeness and the vibrancy they once had. And, and so what, what can I do about that? What can I know about that? Parker Palmer continues, I am fearful. I have fear. But I don't need to be here in my fear. I don't have to speak to you from my fear. I can choose a different place in me, a place of fellow feeling, of, of feeling traveling, of journeying together in some mystery that I know we share. I can be not afraid even while I have fear. And that's, what a beautiful thing to say. We acknowledge what it is and we can say, I have fear, but I don't want to be fear. And I don't want to live from fear. But did this boy ever have that conversation? Did he ever have people around him that were awake and aware and say, it's going to be okay? It's going to be okay. Even when the police pull you over, it's okay. You know, there's a, there's a difference between uh, peacekeepers and law enforcement. Language is so important. And so when I hear people talking about law enforcement, all of a sudden there's a whole different, there's a whole different vibration around it. And how am I contributing to that myself? Because the subtleties of language represent consciousness. And it is the consciousness upon the words. 
So what can I, David's second question, what can I be wholehearted about? And he said there was a time he was working in a nonprofit and he was just absolutely stressed out. He said I was in this nonprofit organization, they were trying to fix, and he said I was trying to fix the world and finding the world didn't want to be fixed as quickly as I'd like it to be fixed. He said I found myself exhausted, stressed, and finally after one particularly hard day at the end of my tether, I went home and saw a bottle of fine red wine. He said, I'd left it on the table that morning before I left, and I didn't drink it immediately, though I was tempted. But it reminded me that I was to have a very special guest that evening. That guest was Austrian friend, a Benedictine monk, Brother David uh, Stendel Rast, the nearest thing I have to a really wise person in my life at that time or any time since. We would read German poetry together. He would translate the original text. I read all the translations, all the while we drank the red wine. But I had my day on mind and the mind-numbing tiredness I was experiencing at work and I said suddenly out of nowhere almost beseechingly brother David speak to me of exhaustion I mean I watch the world I watch you I watch your life so I watch where I, you know we, it's easy to fall into the exhaustion and I think this, this is just so wonderful what, what uh, brother uh, Stendhal Rast had to say he says tell me about exhaustion and, he, and then he said a life-changing thing. You know, he said, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. What is it then? The antidote to exhaustion is wholeheartedness. Is wholeheartedness. You're so exhausted because you can't be wholehearted at what you're doing because your real conversation with life is through poetry. It was just the beginning of a long road that was to take my real work out into the world, but it was a beginning. And so what happened is this mentor came along and said, David, you need, to, you need to pour your energy and your love and your passion into the thing that brings you to life, and it's his poetry. He said, what, what do I care most about in my vocation? And this is a question for all of us. What do we care most about in detail? And are you moving in that direction? And if you're not, it's okay. It's, this is not to put pressure on. This is to simply be in the question, because if you allow that question to, to emerge, all of a sudden you realize, hmm, I could do this differently. You know, I think I might be done here. Or move into it in a different way. He said, this is a conversation that we all must have with ourselves at every stage of our lives. A conversation that we so often don't want to have. We will get to it, we say, when the kids are grown. When there's enough money. When we're retired. Oh, maybe we'll get to it when we're dead. Because if we wait long enough... It will be easier then, but we need to ask it now. What can, what can I be wholehearted about now? And wholehearted has many levels. It's courage, connection, compassion. And number three, the third question, am I harvesting from this year's season of life? Am I harvesting from this year's season of life? And many people here grew up in an agricultural background. Am I harvesting from, or you, you plant gardens. Am I harvesting from this year's season of life? Youth is wasted on the young, is the old saying. But it might also be said that midlife is wasted on, the, on those in their 50s. And eldership is very often wasted on the old. Most people, uh, David White continues, I believe are living four or five years behind the curve of their own transformation. Most people are living four or five years behind the curve of their own transformation. I've seen this over and over in my own life and people that I love and admire. You know that you're done with the job. You know you're done with the relationship. You know you're done with the bad habit. But it takes about four or five years to finally put it down. And it's frustrating because you come here and say, I'm not doing that anymore. And then you take the class and you stop doing it for two weeks. You go, oh, this is great. I got it knocked. And then three weeks later, you're back doing it again. You go, oh, what am I going to do? I'm no good. I've disproven the theory. You've spent 40 years building a consciousness and a habit. 
I believe it takes 21 months to change it. They always say 21 days. It's, forget 21 days. 21 months. I believe, but it takes time. Because then that becomes our way of being. Most people, I believe, are living four or five years behind the curve of their own transformation. I see it all the time in my own life and others. The temptation to stay in a place where they were previously comfortable. Making it difficult to move to the frontier that we're actually on now. And it can be, it can be ge- geographical. It can be, and I think, really, it can be spiritual. People usually only come to this frontier, and this is, I think this is true as well, when they have had a terrible loss in their lives, or they've been fired, or some other trauma breaks open their story. And then they can't tell the story anymore. But having spent so much time away from what is real, they hit, they hit present reality with such impact that they break apart on contact with the true process. The true process continues. A year or so ago, I found myself in exactly this dynamic. My, <clears throat> sorry. With the true circumstance. So the trick is to catch up with the conversation and stay with it. Where am I now? And not let ourselves become abstracted from what is actually occurring around us. If you were a farmer and you tried to harvest what belongs to the previous season, you'd exhaust yourself trying to bring it in. And when it's no longer there. Or attempting to gather fruit too early, too hard, or too late, or too ripe. A person must understand the conversations happening around them as early in the process as possible and then stay with it until it bears fruit. And that's staying current. That requires us to wake up and stay awake. To wake up and stay awake. But aren't they wonderful questions? And we don't have to answer them. We don't have to ha- ever have the answers. But I, I love the, 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 the tidbits of and insight and wisdom. And I've got seven more of David's uh, questions I want to use over the next two weeks. Because I just think they're wonderful. I'm going to re- remind you again. Of the, are you... Are you able to have a real conversation? And sometimes that's just simply with ourselves. You know, I love the work of, of um, Timothy Ferris. He says, what, you know, it's not about what makes us happy or what do we want. It's about what brings us to life, what excites us. Howard Thurman said it. Don't worry about what the world needs. Be concerned about what brings you to life and then go do that because that's what the world needs is you alive. That is so true. You know, I was watching a program earlier this morning, about 10 minutes, and they were talking about, there was a group of people from the evangelical movement, and they were talking about who's going to make it into heaven. And there's a minister in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The young guy's got a congregation of 10,000 people, and he's, a, he's, a, uh, he's from their, their group. But he said, you know, I just have a problem. He said, I have a problem and that if a 17-year-old atheist dies... According to Scripture, and, 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 and Scripture once again is subjective. It was written through individuals, and some of it. So you have to take into consideration the level of consciousness writing. And there were different authors, but if you you, you interpret it literally, he said, "I have a real problem with a 17-year-old atheist dying, and in 70 million years from now, that 17-year-old atheist is going to still be burning in hell." I have a problem with that. And I thought, isn't it fascinating? Here are people that have, have degrees and, are, and, and all kinds of letters after their names having this conversation about the literal interpretation of hell. <clears throat> and I, and I, I finally turned it off, I just, but I thought it was fascinating to watch that level of thinking. And I don't have a, I mean, I, I get it. Well, I, when I, and when I see that, it's just, I simply say, this does not represent me. I just do not 
I do not resonate with it, but I'm so grateful to have this wonderful wealth of knowledge and experience. And Dr. Ernest Holmes codified what we teach here, affirmative prayer. And it really is, affirmative prayer is just one form of prayer. Affirmative prayer doesn't have to be five steps. It can be yes. It can just be a yes in a moment. When you open, well, you know that moment. There's a practice in, uh, in uh, Elizabeth Lesser's book, The Seeker's Guide. And she said, if you take a breath in really quick, you can identify where it is. You can feel it. Try that. And you can feel it in your If you do it, practice enough, there's a subtlety to it. And she said, work with that. But that's, that's your center. That's your heart center. And she said, it's usually in, this, it's usually in the sternum area. And, it, and she kind of gives a, a description of where it is. And to live in that heart center. And to open that. But it's when we, had, we identified at that subtle level of opening. And to invite the question in. That's the most important. I don't know what that question is for you. That's the great thing about what I get to do. Is I don't have to make up the questions for you. I can share some questions here that I think are wonderful and rich. You know, is the crop that you're harvesting this year's crop? And maybe you don't want to grow soybeans anymore. You know, maybe you're on to canola. Who knows what it is? But it, in our lives, because each thought, each moment is an opportunity to, to continue to nurture the, the, the crop that we've planted and to have the awareness to say, this, this does, this is what I'm for, this is what I, I live for, this is what I'm called to live for. And if we're not living that, then what is it? And people, I've had people go through the Prosperity Plus class and someone said to me the other day, I still don't know. And all I can say is, well, <clears throat> that confusion is serving that person really well right now. Because there's things happening. And so it's not, it's not instantaneous. Many times we have to work with, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I don't know it's okay to live in the question, but to stay in the conversation and make it real with ourselves and make it real with one another. And then we can have the conversation like he had with his daughter, Charlotte. And she said, you know, Charlotte, what is it that you'd like me to no longer do? And what would you like me to do more of? And, and so when I hear that, I, say to my, I can say to myself, self, what is it you'd like me to stop doing? And what would you like me to do more of? Joseph Campbell, I want to leave you with this because I just think this is wonderful. And I think it's something that's a practice that, you know, when, when we live from these principles, when we're rich and we show up, and I just think at the subtle level of expression, we create the opening for everyone to have a richer experience of life. When we're living in the freedom, when we're doing the work and we're mindful, everywhere we show up is a blessing. I just, I just know that in my heart of hearts. There's so many beautiful people on this planet. Whether they get our teaching or not, it doesn't matter. And I may not understand their teaching, and they might, may not like it because I don't, but it's okay. you still got to love them. And, and I think that's part of, of spiritual maturing, understanding that I don't represent them, but I still can love them. They may not want to hang, hang out with me. They may not want to hear anything I have to say, but my opportunity is to still love them because that is the grace and the beauty of what the teacher Jesus talked about. So Joseph Campbell says this. <clears throat> His big theme was to follow your bliss. So the way to find out about your happiness is to keep your mind on those moments when you feel most happy, when you really are happy. Not excited, not just thrilled, but deeply happy. Everybody here has been deeply happy at one point in your life, probably more times than you've been sorrowful. And I'll share a story that she tells, I don't have time this week, of, uh, based on this, an experience she had with uh, someone she worked with. This requires a bit of self-analysis, 
This is Joseph Campbell once again. What is it that makes you happy? Stay with it no matter what people tell you. This is what I call following your bliss. This is what I call following your bliss. One of the things that really makes me happy is when I have a a wonderful week of research and, and, and discovery and oh my gosh, and I get to come and I get to share that with you. I, it's just great joy. I was thinking about the other day. I said, what would I do if I didn't get to do this? I'd probably stand over there in the park and just talk to myself, get a, you know, an imaginary congregation maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But I love the discovery and I love watching it and say, how can I relate that? Because it challenges me and it stretches me. And so it, there's a great joy in, in the collaboration. And I, I love that. I love the, the support that I have brought into my life in so many ways. Some personally, some, some very energetically. And, and, and to watch the shifts and changes in the subtlety. And I feel so called. You know, a couple of weeks ago I talked about the Robert Kennedy thing. I just think that parking spaces are wonderful. But to also take our teaching, when we see the things that are going on in our community that we can bring awareness to and bring wisdom to and bring insight to so that we can help shift the conversation. It's transformative. It's transformative. And I believe that's what we're doing here. With our, with our little ones downstairs and our teens, they're influenced by the subtleties of what's happening with us. So your good is, is my good. There's no private good. And as we give birth to consciousness, it shifts and changes. We want to harvest this today. We don't want to, we, we're not here to harvest what happened two years ago or three years ago. That's wonderful and we build upon that. That's part of our, our history. We're here to harvest what is here today. And to be in the world in a way that, that makes a difference in every way possible. And I love that. So this week I'm going to dwell on what makes me happy. What, is, what truly brings me to happiness? And I was sharing with Laura this morning a little bit of it. And, it's, and, it's, and there are times I'm thrilled and there's times when I'm excited. But what truly is happy? And I want to move to that. I want to move to that and stay in that. And, I'm, and I know you do too. And so it is. Thank <laughs> you.